Welcome to Salamander Babies, the only Star Trek podcast about salamanders. Fact. <laughs> I checked. And babies. <laughs> I'm quantum anarchist Jim Gold. Holodeck programmer Jen Marshall. I'm temporal timekeeper Mario Panichetti. I'm chief philosophy officer Lou Gold. This week we'll be discussing Voyager, season 2, episode 16, Meld. If you'd like to watch the episode before we start our discussion, feel free to pause the show and resume when you're ready. After discovering a murderer aboard Voyager, Tuvok becomes obsessed and risks succumbing to his own emotions. Synopsis. That's it. (laughs) Sweet. All right. Not a lot going on in this episode on that level. Well, I think... So, uh, I guess to start off... uh, I thought this episode was um, was very nicely compact. I mean, aside from the B plot, which I think we're gonna we're gonna start talking we're gonna talk about later. Most of this will be about the B plot, I assume. <laughs> I would love to talk about that B plot. Okay, we'll get to the B plot. But for the A plot, I thought it was it was nice at n- nicely compact. It didn't seem like it went on too long. Uh, as in, like it it's not like a movie where you're sitting there and it's like an hour and a half and you're like, Oh my God, it feels like this hour is th- this movie is three hours long. This is just not good. Uh, or I didn't feel that way. And it also, I felt like it, it, it was compelling and it, it did a lot of good things in terms of storytelling. Yeah. I will say when I was remembering this episode before we watched it, I'm like, Oh, it's that murder mystery episode. It's not a murder mystery episode. The murder mystery is resolved almost immediately. So I do like the uh, the expediency of getting to the actual story that they're intending. Even if it's wrapped in like, a, oh, what if someone was murdered in the Delta Quadrant? I agree. We learn a little bit more about Tuvok as a Vulcan um, and his processes in his own brain, as well as like an interesting gray morality story, which is also a little bit more interesting than just like, this is right and this is wrong, the Star Trek story. Yeah. I liked the idea of having like a police procedural on on Voyager, um, but like like you said, Mario, they just totally did not do that. Um, They're just like, oh, this guy's this guy's suspicious. Oh, this guy's the murderer. That's pretty much the the extent of the procedure. And then it just wound up being um, more a study of of Tuvok and like how how it, it sort of brought a number of his flaws to the surface. And I think it did it really well. Yeah, something we brought up in the conversation watching the episode is. It would have been kind of cool to see a CSI Voyager where it's like a straight up criminal procedural, but with space and tricorders and transporters. Yeah, that is a show I would definitely watch. Same. One of the things that I, I don't want to say was teased, maybe, maybe it was teased, other than the investigation portion of it, was the episode kind of hinted at exploring the relationship between Tuvok and the Maquis crew, which I found kind of interesting. And I like that they started to get into that. I don't honestly mind that they didn't really dive into it deeply because that wasn't really what the episode was about. But um, I, I do like that they tried to touch upon or explore or shed more light on several different issues in this episode. Yeah, it did hint that Tuvok understands that there could be some underlying resentment towards him and his other Starfleet officers by the, the Maquis faction is interesting it's not something that you think about too often it's something they seem to tease that they would be thinking about a lot in the show but i don't know how well that really panned out over the course of the series probably the best exploration they had on the maquis was an episode we've previously mentioned where tuvok uh, runs the simulation on a maquis uprising which is interesting because it comes later once the crews have already pretty much assimilated but it's like oh this was something on people's minds even if it wasn't really brought up very much in the show yeah, the whole Maquis situation, it, it's mentioned sort of offhand a few times. It's, it occasionally plays a, a plot point, but for the audience, it doesn't really come into play very often. Probably the best example of the character who exemplifies that struggle is Bellana Torres, and it's not that long before she's pretty well assimilated into the crew. Yeah, um, one of the first episodes in the entire series is involves um, Janeway choosing between Bellana and and an actual Voyager. I, I think the, the the chief engineer gets killed yeah. um, in the pilot, and it's sort of a choice between like their subordinate and Bolana, and Bolana's just like very competent and all that, and the, the, the other subordinate is just not in some way. Um, I have a point about uh, 
Chakotay bringing up Suter's personality uh, when he's oh. first asked about him. When they're looking mm-hmm. for suspects. Yeah. yeah. Um, it struck me as kind of unprofessional. Like, as a character witness, he's the worst, like, literally. Like, it was all speculation. Like, oh, I've just never been comfortable around him. I mean, if somebody murdered something, somebody, it was probably that guy. Like, if they were going to do this in, like, a court of law... That should definitely not be admitted as testimony, I would assume, since it's all just like, it's, it's not evidence, it's just kind of Chipotle being Chipotle, doing what he does. Yeah, it's a little worrisome that when they're asking about Suter and Chakotay's like, oh yeah, he's got kind of a murdery vibe. And they're like, you didn't tell us this when you joined the crew that you've got a guy with a murdery vibe? Like, that would be good to know. Yeah, I, I actually very much enjoyed... Tuvok being like, well, why didn't you put this in your report? Like, of the people that somehow make it in Samaki and you guys don't do background checks, this feels very apt to know. I, I appreciate even the speculation, just because they have so little to go off of. Yeah, I guess they're hurtling themselves through space for 70 years in a tube, and they're stuck with this guy who everybody suspects to be a murderer. Well, yeah, but if, if he wasn't murdering people without, you know, pretty good reason, like... Cardassians. It was his job to murder Cardassians. He just liked it a little too much. And that's what scared Chakotay and Balana. But Chakotay's position on that was like, well, I mean, yeah, he liked murdering people when he was supposed to, but he, he didn't seem to otherwise murder people. So I wasn't going to like, and, and he says in the episode, I didn't want to, um, something like, I, I didn't want to put too much of like a burden on these people who are trying to like actually assimilate yeah i think the way he described it was he wanted to give everyone a second chance that they were merging together and they were kind of putting the past behind them for the sake of the common goal of getting back to the alpha quadrant and he worried that that would that kind of report would prejudice him against the crew but it seems like there might have been some basic safety concerns to bring up like you know chakotay did say like he didn't murder anyone that wasn't our enemy but he could have brought something up so that the doctor could have assisted him medically. Like, they seem to have a pretty good handle in the medical sense of how to deal with these problems. Yeah. But, and that's something they could have addressed if it had come up. Yeah, that's fair. But then he wouldn't have had an episode because he wouldn't have murdered anybody. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I still think Chipotle's position on the whole thing was pretty defensible. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess there's no point in saying Chicote by himself could have prevented this, which is not <laughs> I mean, true. <laughs> I'm happy to blame Chicote for many of the things that go wrong in these episodes. Yeah, it's just interesting where he's just like, oh, that guy, yeah, he probably killed him. Yeah, <laughs> well, not, not a great response. I mean, he was the only the only crewman on the roster for that period of time, so sure. it's like they didn't really have any other suspects. It's like if I were Chipotle and you had come to me and said, "Okay, somebody was murdered between this period and that period in this period of time, and there was only this one guy who who is f- creepy." <laughs> uh, have you seen his pupils? <laughs> yeah, because you can't see anything else. <laughs> on the roster i mean i would have been like well yeah you probably did it (laughs) but maybe he could use that as the reason that oh you've got the evidence why don't you pursue that instead of oh here's a character attack on top of it yeah like let the evidence present itself i guess yes yeah obviously this is me being like meta reason but clearly i want to help establish that um suitors a creepy guy not that that needs establishing because five seconds with him and you're like Ugh. <laughs> yeah five seconds with brad Dourif and you're like you probably killed and eaten people <laughs> you're hired um, for this episode of voyager yeah <laughs> which uh, so to be perfectly clear uh i did choose this episode strictly because he was in it um <laughs> your pattern holds up you like the yeah, guest stars i i lo- i'm here for the guest stars uh but this also happens to be an episode that i really really enjoyed so you know it fits yeah, and again, the complaints I've had about it didn't really bear out because it didn't end up being a murder mystery episode. Like, really, they needed to expediently establish him as the murderer so they could get to the meat of the episode. Yeah. It wasn't going to open with a trial or some or an interrogation or something like that. They had to establish, oh, someone got murdered. It was him. Now let's look into the meaning of violence and how Vulcans deal with it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting that, well, obviously it wasn't about the murder because we don't hear about crew and Darwin. <laughs> Again. The loved character crew and Darwin. <laughs> yeah, R.I.P. Definitely an original cast. Yeah, but it was it was interesting to see a murder story from that angle, like the nature of violence and how Vulcans might kind of subvert that human nature type thing. Yeah, I mean, going back to the Pitcher Plan episode, the guest star in that case was Crowley's dad, 
whom whom we all know and love. Uh, <laughs> but like Mark Shepard, yeah, Mark Shepard um, played Romo Lampkin on Battlestar Galactica, and and like that was a situation where we're having a trial as the center like plot point of an arc within a sci-fi show worked i think really well and in this case totally totally uh, totally averted like they, th- there is no trial at all it was just like oh yeah i, I murdered i murdered him Look, Here, here's the murder weapon <laughs> yeah it, here's the time and place it all checks out yeah jen like you mentioned the the murder the police procedural true crime thing uh segment from rick and morty <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, I did it. Here's the murder weapon. <laughs> give me the, give me the chair. Yep. <laughs> yep. Other side point. It's funny that the murdered crewman's name is Darwin. It's also interesting to note that Suter mentions that he was sitting at the uh, the impulse system control panel. And like, <laughs> <laughs> very obviously, that was not Suter's position. That I did not even catch that. <laughs> yeah, I didn't either. That was good. <laughs> Not very good at that impulse control, so he wasn't there. Yeah, that's no, a pretty that's good gag. <laughs> so yeah, I guess after the trial in air quotes, um, <laughs> we have the sequence where Tuvok essentially interrogates Suter in in the brig, and is is distressed, is like unnerved by the idea that there's just a guy who who committed a murder with no no real discernible motive that i think is what what really propels Tuvok's like character through the episode it's it's that sort of not being able to comprehend just simple violence and and that's that's like essentially a flaw that is brought to the surface in Tuvok and then and then he acts on that and and needs to know more and then we see what happens yeah, it kind of reminds me of um, Javert and Les Mis, um, where his central thing is that he can't comprehend that maybe Jean Valjean is a good person in addition to being a criminal, and maybe he doesn't deserve to stay in jail for his whole life for stealing bread. He knows um, that bread crimes are the worst crimes. Yes. I'm trying to think of a pun. I'll think of one later. I haven't yet risen to the occasion. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Dope. You need Anyways. to you need to wait to prove yourself. <laughs> Yeasty. I really like Tuvok. I, I am happy to see him do all sorts of interesting things in this episode. But I was a little bit. It's a little frustrating because like I find it hard to believe that Tuvok would actually have this problem just because he's such a pragmatist generally that he didn't just accept a crime of opportunity or something. The, the like you know he has to have a motive and it's like well he looked at me funny and it's like well what distinguishes that from any other person that looked at you funny you know on the crew and i'm just like you were alone with the guy like the, the murderer was alone with the victim and shit happens and i'm just like so it was a little bit hard for me to deal with that but i i'm willing to overlook it because i like that tuvok went on this journey and things like that but it's it, it was a little bit tough for me to accept him refusing to be pragmatic in furtherance of his curiosity and logic. I was a little bit torn on it initially because for one part of it, it seems very uncharacteristic. He was sort of driven by this impulse and it just didn't really seem in the character of Tuvok. But on the other, I actually liked that we saw a Vulcan kind of act on their baser feelings. And it's not something you see very often unless they're under the influence of a pitcher plant or something. Like, I think of someone like Spock from the original series who was always very level-headed, very mindful, very um, methodical. And you didn't really have a lot of stories where he acted on an impulse from the beginning. It was usually some external influence changed his behavior and made him do that. And that's usually how Vulcans are depicted in Trek as being the level-headed ones. So I liked that Tuvok kind of got to be a person (laughs) and have imperfections. Yeah, I mean, the imperfection part, I don't think was not Vulcan of him. I I thought it was more... Um, so if there's anything I could knock sort of the writers for in this, it's the idea that Tuvok wouldn't just accept Suter's lack of motive, like null motive. But but given that he doesn't accept it, um, it I think it's pretty reasonable to to imagine a Vulcan saying like, I I never act on impulses. Like like the entire concept of like Vulcan emotional suppression is like suppressing every impulse um they can they can possibly feel and and it i don't think it's too hard to believe that he would 
be flummoxed by someone else actually doing that. And so I'll knock the writers in, in sort of one direction, but also give them credit in another. Yeah, same. I guess um, the one external force that I could see potentially impacting Tuvok is the fact that Suter is a Betazoid and he's a telepath, and that doesn't serve a purpose in the episode for the most part. So maybe, and this is me coming up with another dumb headcanon, but maybe Suter's telepathic factor is causing impulse control problems from the beginning of their interaction because he's because Tuvok starts off fairly reasonable but he's even losing his um control before he does the mind meld a little bit that seemed a little strange to me that they mentioned the possibility of oh because a Vulcan mind melded with a Betazoid something was incompatible with their telepathy and like this has never happened in the history of these two races that are both part of the Federation ever like that that seemed like a really strange thing to just have never come up in in the extensive studies of mind melds, which the doctor references, like in other episodes, he's like, I have the complete information on the like the medical records on mind melds from Vulcan doctors, and like it seemed unusual that that was such a weird edge case, or that it would be the cause of those problems. That's also fair, but they do go on to to indicate that like, well, Suter says most Betazoids are totally like comfortable with their telepathic abilities, and then and he just. Like he says, he doesn't even know his own emotions. I think I can grant the writers the the credit to say, like, okay, this is... He's not human, so we can't just sort of, like, expect human levels of emotional control. Um, he's a Betazoid. And they're weird with emotions anyway. And he's an even weirder Betazoid. Like, he's... Not weirder. I, I don't know. That's a really, like, derogatory way to put it. But, like, he's, he's neuroatypical for a Betazoid. Yeah, I, I guess my issue I had with it was that he didn't have to be Betazoid for the story to work. That's fair. I think humans have enough complex psychology that you have people who are not neurotypical and who don't fit inside the normal boxes that they establish even in, in the show's medical knowledge. And so I think the Betazoid thing was a red herring. Like, it didn't really serve to explain anything that was happening as unusual. I could also believe that if Tuvok my male with a psychopath, the same thing would happen, whether or not they were telepaths. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a fair point. I was actually originally going to bring up the compatibility of Betazoids, because uh, I had forgotten a lot of Betazoid information, so I looked it up um, before we recorded this. Oh, and you did research. Mm, I, I cheated. Um, <laughs> so I looked it up, and Betazoids are very compatible species. There are lots of Betazoid hybrids, so I was thinking, originally I was thinking, oh, maybe that would lend itself to the poor excuse of the Betazoid uh, Vulcan telepathy issue, but as you pointed out, he's atypical. But one of the things that also was mentioned in the article in Betazoids is that a common problem that they have is that they, I forget, there's like an illness, a fever that they run, and then they project their emotional states on others. Hmm. Now, is this memory alpha or memory beta? This is important. I don't know. Because memory like beta is, is beta. the novels and like the, no, the less was, canonical things. No, this was a um, TNG episode. Okay, it's from an episode. Yeah. I can believe that. Yeah. Yeah. It seems vaguely familiar to me. It's been a couple of years since I've watched TNG all the way through. Yeah, I have another talking point about Suter's punchable face. <laughs> How punchable is Suter's face? It's you don't, punchable. You don't like him? I do like him. I'm well, just saying, I can like somebody and think they have a punchable face. Well, so, is it... <laughs> is, it that the, is it that his face is soft and therefore comfortably punched? Wouldn't that or... absorb punches, though? Like, <laughs> so your fist would get stuck? So just punching a pillow. Well, like, my talking point was, um, like, do you think that he's meaning to be a dick when he's talking to Tuvok? Like after he's after the meld, when he's like all Vulcany now, he's got the Vulcan like, composure. Do you, do you think that he means to be a dick to him? Like, is that on purpose, or maybe he's just like this is just his consciousness? So that the scene where Tuvok is still incorporating the first meld, <laughs> and they're they're talking through the force field and the brig. I totally did get the feeling that Suter was trolling Tuvok, and like sort of goading him into succumbing to some violent impulses that he may be feeling. Um, I definitely got that sense. Um, and I'm not sure whether it was um, sort of out of an animosity towards Tuvok 
I, I feel like it easily could have been. Mm-hmm. Just kind of a snide poking. That was one of the parts of the episode that I thought was kind of weak, but it didn't it didn't totally not fit, I think. So um, I had two, two different thoughts that I think hold true and are consistent. In general, I thought it was baiting and playful. I, I think that he potentially felt that he had a counterpart finally. You know, maybe there's a... a hey, somebody sort of gets me and, you know, he, he's engaging with material that he hasn't been able to engage with before. But at the same time, there's a little bit of a death wish that Suter has because he's like, I'd kill me. Um, and when he's saying, you know, at the end of the, the conversation after the first meld, he's saying the, you know, potentially you could kill somebody with a mind meld. I think that was him being like, f*** do it. <laughs> I, that's, that was my interpretation of it was the, isn't this appealing and it's you know, it's attractive and you know here's something that you could do that would be incredibly violent this is interesting because i had a different read on the scene and this probably speaks to them not explaining themselves very well and their premise for the scene and why like jim said it's kind of a weak moment in the episode the way i read it was he had gained new vulcan composure from tuvok which helped him become more introspective and analytical about his own condition till he understood it probably better than he ever did before it seemed like he was almost trying to warn Tuvok of what was happening. He's like, hey, this is what you're going through. This is a very powerful thing you're feeling, and you can't just shrug it off or meditate it away. I've tried my whole life to deal with this and couldn't. I'm the closest I ever was. But it seemed to me like he was actually being very sympathetic to Tuvok's new issues. And any animosity he might have had toward Tuvok, he didn't really seem to display for the rest of the episode after he'd gotten the Vulcan mind meld. So I think that Suter's camaraderie with Tuvok, I, I believe that they formed that bond, or at least Suter felt that he had that bond. Right, he's like, you're and, going through this, I've been there. But my interpretation was that that really clicked in um, after Tuvok got the treatment that failed. Well, not failed, but when he comes back the second time and Suter's like, whoa, 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 you know, it's not quite let's do this together, but it's, it's more of a support than it had been in the first scene. So I think that like eventually they got there, but for for me, there was a strange morbid playfulness to the first time that that kind of maybe there was a little bit less hostility, but it, I didn't think it was quite as cautionary. Going back to what you said, Mario, about about the idea that the the meld allowed Suter to be introspective, I I definitely got that out of this latest viewing, and um, but I still felt like there was a, a like a negative aspect to the the interaction that he had with Tuvok after that first meld. I think he sort of understood his own condition like you said a lot more, but he was still sort of saying like isn't uh, the violence is uh, violence is kind of a nice thing. It's a fun it's a fun thing. It's a, it's a, it's an impulse that like that needs to be sated or uh, stuff like that. Yeah, the read I got from him is that he had long been resigned to the fact that he had these tendencies. And, you know, it even shows the episode where he only half-heartedly denied it and then came clean pretty quickly. He's like, yeah, this is who I am. This is how I am. And I like that I am feeling like I'm in a better place mentally now. And I'd like to meld again to continue that if that would be effective. I, I didn't I didn't read animosity at that point. And maybe that's something I missed or maybe that's something that they just didn't telegraph. Telegraphing is a big problem in the show. We're like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Slightly divergent from that on the topic of Tuvok releasing his new violent urges. <laughs> He seems to have a more or a less criminally destructive way of doing that with his holodeck program that he programs himself with Neelix inside of it and then murders him casually. <laughs> Who knows how many uh, times he's well, done so, that. So I, I got the impression that only that only happened once. Oh, my headcanon is that it was like the 10th or 12th loop. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, oh, let's adjust the parameters. I could do this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's very possible that like he'd lasted the entire duration. I don't know. A half hour of Neelix <laughs> goading me into... I mean, how long would any of us last? Yeah, I, I wouldn't... Uh, I, I'd go... Like that. And see um, his face and just go after it. Just, <laughs> um, just like wonky eyes. <laughs> with that, oh, jeez, fix your contacts, Neelix. <laughs> but I mean, I got the impression that I mean, maybe he had adjusted a few things, but like that was the first time that he had actually like acted on an impulse. And and at that point, he was like, okay, I need to. I'm going to my quarters. I'm locking myself in, and that's it. Like the fact that he just couldn't hold it together uh, was enough for him to like know that 
that he was not in control. I just want to give a, a shout out to the writers of that scene and then Tim Russ and Ethan Phillips because I've seen the episode before, I've seen the gif, I knew it was coming, but like watching that scene play out, even though you know exactly what's going to happen, just every exaggerated detail of it and the writing was, the dialogue was good, Tim Rusk having his lip pulled up, like, you know, and just, like, you could see that I'm gonna f kill this guy on his face. <laughs> that was fantastic. So props. I just need to put that in. Mm -hmm. It's kind of funny that last week we also watched Neelix die. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not totally out of the realm of possibility for Neelix to just be dead again for no reason. I mean, that's not a bad running theme for the podcast. I, I, you just find all the episodes yeah. where Neelix gets killed. I don't disagree. Which is funny because when we started this podcast, I thought it would be all the episodes where Harry Kim dies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, but it goes to like the quality of Tim Russ as an actor where we were, when we were watching the episode when I, I think in the conversation after the first meld after so after he's sort of absorbed the, the violent tendencies or um, or sort of broken down some of his impulse control, he's wringing his hands. Uh, he's pacing, he's blinking a lot. His intonation changes a lot, I think, in order to like indicate that he's agitated, which is definitely not a Vulcan thing. I, I was really impressed with Tim Russ. This is like, this is what it is to be an actor. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I thought it was great. It is definitely showcasing his acting ability, but it's also a common theme in Trek episodes. Every Trek has a character who is level-headed and reasonable. And so what's really interesting is they often choose actors who are actually very emotive. You think of someone like Brent Spiner as Data. He plays a character who is completely emotionless and he does that very well. But the reason they hired him is because he also can break from that and push very far in the other direction, which is very effective visually and, and from a storytelling perspective when he suddenly gets emotions or when he suddenly diverges from his character. And so these kind of episodes are, are showcases for these particular characters and those actors to really show what they're able to do. And, and Tim Russ did an amazing job. Yeah. yeah. That, that whole, so that whole monologue he gets in the sick bay as evil Tuvok. Yes, it was yeah. very theater school. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's, but it's, this is your exercise for today. <laughs> but it's excellent. Too. Yes. No, I, um, it just it was very like monologue theater school. It's like you could see like the spotlight. <laughs> like he's wearing a black turtleneck. He's ready to go. My student, my protege. Yeah. That's <laughs> What's your name? <laughs> I mean, you mentioned Brent Spiner and, and some of the best work that he did in TNG, I think, was when he was playing both Data and Lore. And, and the ability for him to do the relatively small things to indicate to the audience that he was lore. Um, and the episode where he played all three, where he played his creator in the same oh, episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Minnie and Soong? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Played Dr. Soong and Data and lore in single scenes. I think my favorite is the, the life form song. Isn't that um, <laughs> Nemesis? Uh, it's Generations. Forms. Generations, yes. When he first has the emotion chip <laughs> in the movies. <laughs> I, that's one of my ringtones. <laughs> Sweet. It works very well. Yes. Where are you? Do, 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 do. <laughs> it brings me joy. <laughs> yeah, it's like that wouldn't have the same impact if it was coming from Jordy or something. Like, yeah, he'd be acting a little unusual, but it's really striking when it comes from the android or the Vulcan. Yes. Like, that's why Vulcan as a concept exists, is to be yeah. an emotionless character. You can imagine Jonathan Frakes trying to do that and just totally failing. <laughs> I, he's he's done crazy in an episode that was pretty good yeah. for a few seconds before the ship explodes <laughs> no there's a whole episode where um he basically is envisioning that he is existing in a future timeline and that all the events of the episode are happening in the, his past huh. he's jumping back and forth between the two of them and trying to convince people he's not crazy uh, he's also happening to play a character in a play in the present day that is a character who is like going into an asylum like it's actually <laughs> a really fascinating episode i want to watch this and crusher's like you're, you're too deep into the role. She's like, basically, you're method acting so much that you, you're actually going crazy. <laughs> like Daniel trying, Day Lewis. She's just trying to figure out his rea what's reality. Oh my gosh. Huh. You know what we could talk about? Is the B plot. Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so much yes. So all Let's this. spend an hour on this. All of this stuff about murder and Vulcans and mind melds and emotion and violence is really just a prelude to the main plot of this episode. <laughs> Picture yourself. Chez Sandrine. It's in France, right? 
Presumably. France, it's, Earth. I, it's in the holodeck. I think it's in Marseille. I think that's the, the bar that he goes to in Marseille yeah. Um, yeah, I think when he's on Earth. He basically recreates, Tom Paris recreates a bar that he frequented on Earth and, this, and the owner. As a as a holodeck pastime, as a fawning holodeck program, right? I'm sure she behaves exactly the same toward him in real life. I wonder if that so gross. I wonder if she got reprogrammed after uh, Bellana and him started dating. Ha! I'm just She's saying. Like, you can't like, keep going to Sandrina. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Sandrina is now a hag. <laughs> no, she just got moved into the secret directory and is um, <laughs> in his private files. It's a holodeck simulation where they basically play pool. It's it's actually kind of really boring in terms of... <laughs> it's terrible. Their, this group pastime. Like, they run the holodeck for hours at a time, so multiple crew members can hang out and play pool and drink not alcohol, because I don't think you can drink things in the holodeck. Like, they wouldn't stay in your stomach. They have replicators. Is the holodeck I, making non-holographic food? Yeah, I think so. That's what I thought was going on. Oh, my assumption was always that everything was holographic. So my question is, how many replicator rations do you think it would take to actually make a pool table in one of the uh, cargo bays? Oh well, I thought I thought you were going in a slightly like, different direction. I, I was wondering like how much energy it actually takes to run, run the holodeck. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm just saying like they could make a pool table and then have an actual pool table and Shit. not have to occupy an entire. They don't need replicator rations for that. They just need to find a planet with a. F- tree all right we need some slate we need some felt they are so far removed from hard labor you think they could build a pool table <laughs> that's Jesus. level at all that's true <laughs> where are they gonna get felt <laughs> how do you even make felt all no right. one knows how let's, you make felt it's, like, it's a lost art in search <laughs> all right we need to find some space beavers <laughs> they steal a carpenter from a pre-warp society <laughs> look, look, look. this is so far in the future that all the space beavers are already shaved oh that's terrible. <laughs> Brazilian space beavers. <laughs> yeah. Space Brazil. All right, space beavers. <laughs> so they're playing pool. No, we need to talk about how to make a pool table. No! Does, do people today know how to make pool tables, or are they just the same pool tables from I'm like the recycling from pool tables. Years? I, I've seen a pool table constructed. Yeah. Just called Bob Vila. There you go. Holographic Bob Vila. Yeah. They, yeah. Got, they got episodes in this old house in the <laughs> holiday. <laughs> Harry's just in there like, yeah, oh. I want to put some molding up. <laughs> that sounds awesome. I would f- love to like build a house in a holodeck. I want to see holographic conversions of old TV shows so they become interactive in 3D. That yes. sounds amazing. Yeah, oh, yes. I would totally watch episodes of this old house. The Bob Villa hologram is only 2D. <laughs> it's, it's a 2D image. Oh, they couldn't figure camera. that out. Oh, God. That would be horrific. <laughs> This is like a cardboard cutout just swinging a hammer. Okay. They recreate Leonardo da Vinci. Like, they could do... A, they could do Bob Vila. They could do a 3D That's conversion. That's John Rhys Davies, too. Yes, it, it is. is. That's, That's what he looks like in real life. So see, great. there's another one. <laughs> Complete with the costume. That's what he wears to bed. <laughs> He's very method. Uh, Everybody who is in Lord of the Rings is in Star Trek Voyager at some point. We'll That's a good point. Out. We didn't even mention that Suter is a... Lord of the Rings veteran. We haven't yet? No, you mentioned all while we were watching the episode. <laughs> you started rattling off Lord of the Rings quotes. <laughs> yeah. The fact that I chose this. So I, I love Brad Dourif. Um, I I think he's a great actor. Uh, he was Wormtongue in The Lord of the Rings. And he was the doctor on Deadwood. And he's probably been in all sorts of other things that I need to watch. But, um, but I think he's wonderful. Yep. Agreed. All right. So they're playing pool. <laughs> <laughs> so they... For their main pastime, they play pool on the holodeck. And I think, Lou and Jim, you actually had some more detailed thoughts on the gambling that they came up with. Okay, so so Tom's like, oh, well, okay, so first of all, there's the whole, I don't know if we want, I'm, I'm sure Jen wants to get into the um, Tom giving Harry advice. So let's, let's do that, and then we'll get to the actual Well, it's bet. like, well, there's Tom Paris as the world's most obvious grifter. <laughs> <laughs> I like how he's teaching Harry about grifting while grifting him yeah. successfully. Come on, Tom. It's like you can't. Let's like, make this interesting. You can't do that thing when people say, "Let's make this interesting." It's like, but I'll give you a wager. It's like, oh my god! <laughs> it's like it's, that makes me think less of Harry and Tom and everybody in that room. Yeah. It's like, are you really just gonna let him get away with that? Think less of Tom. I mean, he knows his target. Like he he found his mark really uh, well as a grifter. So bad. Intellectually, Tom is the only one who comes out of that uh, unscathed. I guess. <laughs> But but in Harry's defense, Tom referred to him as like a best friend, yeah. and therefore <laughs> Harry, he's Harry's, blinded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything after that just went straight 
in one ear and out the other. Yeah, he was See? trying too hard to hide his boner. <laughs> like, how many weeks of rations do you do you want? <laughs> Best friend. Tom found his mark in episode one of the show. <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. been following this grift ever since. <laughs> this is the long con. Eventually, he's gonna like marry Harry, and. And then just, like, take half of his belongings. He's just gonna leave him on the side of the space highway. <laughs> yeah. This is the best episode of Leverage ever. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. And then, yeah, Tom's paternal advice to Harry is just like, who do you think you are, Tom Paris? But that's... That's my reaction to Tom Harris in every episode. But anyways, go on with the, with the gambling. Well, if I could just say, the stakes are so low in this grift. Like, Lou, what, what, are, what are the stakes in this? It, it's, an, it's an open bet. Anybody can get in. It's one replicator ration um, in order to ante in. And basically, the objective is to guess what some f- reading is going to be for the next day. But they don't... Oh my god... Everybody in that room is the dumbest person ever because, like, everybody's like, yeah, okay. Count me in. Like, it's a four-digit number that you have to guess, and nobody says, oh, is this Price is Right rules? Everybody's just like, yeah, sure, I'll guess a random f***ing number. I have to assume there's there's a, a limited range that they're working with here. Like, it but never it, exceads 4,000 gigaquads or something. But it's still a four-digit number. Yeah. And, and like, the, the variation that they had was, like... They could be off by one. and they would still be f***ing wrong. wrong, yeah. Yeah. It was not closest or anything. So, yeah, so everybody is the stupidest person ever. Yeah, everybody's really dumb. Or gambling apparently doesn't exist in the twenty fourth century. See, that's that's my thing is because there's no money, there's no like sense of economics that they've been educated on at all. <laughs> they have I'm no, sure people they get, have no concept of risk. Right, people get cheated of gold press latinum all the time because they don't know its value to free. <laughs> yeah. I'm just like, it, it makes you wonder, like, you know, all those episodes of, like, is it TNG where they're playing poker? Yeah. Yeah. How the fuck did they do that? Well, they're just playing for chips. Like, they don't actually win anything in that game. That was it, probably Riker's brilliant idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Riker is totally the Tom in that yeah. situation. Uh, Not realizing that there's no actual stakes. Yeah, I have all the plastic chips. <laughs> I was watching the episode because in preparation for this, I watched it twice. And the first time I watched it, he was like, okay, let's make a bet. He's like, let's guess this thing. And I didn't realize that it would be a number that would be so large. So I was like, okay, it's a small number probably. Maybe, you know, reasonable odds. Obviously not. But like, he's like, okay, guess the number. And I was like sitting there waiting for more instructions and nobody said anything. And I was like, these guys have no clue. Like, none of them are lawyers. None of them have, like, I'm surprised some, any of them are engineers. Like, what the <laughs> f*** is happening? <laughs> I'll take that one in 4,000 odd. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Tom just literally just says it like, hey, so we guess the radiogenic particle number or whatever. Uh, and and like I said, there's a chorus of, I'm in. Uh, let me let me get in on that action. So and he's I, like, and, and all the while, like after stipulating like, plus a little share for the bank. And 10%. it's like, no f- shit. Like, I, guess, <laughs> I wonder where this is going. So I'm about to give this show... Out of all the episodes we've done, I'm probably going to give the show the most credit ever and way more credit than they deserve. (laughs) Were they trying to suggest that when the ship is stranded, when resources are limited and they're removed from their support system, that economics like erupt spontaneously or that like suddenly people start to have wagers and start to invest value in specific goods that they didn't previously. Is, is that kind of what's happening there psychologically? Um, I think that you are giving them too much credit. <laughs> Good. That's um, what I, I mean, I was going to say that, I mean, I think that's just illustrating Tom as like the, the grift champion um, because he's the house and the house always wins, especially when everyone's dumb enough to play those odds. Seriously. Yeah, I mean, it, I think this is sort of a situation where, like, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Uh, but also, I like the Federation interacts with uh, with other civilizations or other um, whatever entities uh, that do have currency and economics, and like, it shouldn't be alien to these people. Um, but it's the only explanation I have for them taking that shitty bet. Yeah, it's so that, dumb. That's why I'm headcanning this. I'm like, there's really no reason that this should transpire the way it is, unless they're just that clueless about economics. Yeah, yeah. And then Paris being, I was going to say worldly, but that doesn't make sense in space. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he's been around the galaxy. He's He probably interacted outside of the Federation. He, he's had dealings outside the Federation. He He's had dealings with Ferengi, like it's established in the pilot. To- 
to be fair, and just to jump in a little bit, uh, he's obsessed with the 20th century. So, so he's got some <laughs> handle on economics on that level. Yeah. Free, uh, be free economics then. Oh, God. So... <laughs> So I, I would like to point out that their stupidity or lack of experience in gambling, it feels actually kind of appropriate for existing in a post-scarcity environment because they're like, uh, I guess I'll jump into this random thing where I stand to lose something with no actual consideration of what the you know odds are. I mean, kind of, but I, I could easily imagine it swinging in the other direction where like, people used to being able to get food anytime they want, all of a sudden they introduce replicator rations and they're like, what the fuck? I am never giving these up ever. That's what I would think. The, the response to sudden scarcity would be hoarding. Yeah, exactly. But also it, it creates immediate value. And so gambling, I guess, could have some appeal there. I, I guess, but... but is Neelix's food that bad? I don't see <laughs> Like, I guess the question is, how, I don't think they ever establish. What, how many rations do they get? Yeah. Is it one replicator meal a day and then you do the cooking the other two meals? No, it's it's more like you have your rations uh, and then if you don't have any rations, then you don't eat and, and that's it. And so like people are like, uh, some people have like, some people give away like a week, uh, a, a week of replicator rations. Well, a week before they get back home, you know, that's where they stop eating. <laughs> Sucks to be you, man. Yeah. So I'll be fine the food planet. <laughs> That's it. I'm going to give away 50 years worth of replicator rations because I don't think that we're going to be very good at this whole getting home thing. <laughs> See, that's good economics. <laughs> You're hedging. <laughs> that's ridiculous. <laughs> well, I'm going to bet 50 years of, of rations because if I start actually starving, somebody will stop the ship and we will find food. That's the thing. Like... This would also destroy the economy, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it would just, just 50 years of rations. <laughs> I would like to short the replicator ration. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the other thing that the, uh, the B-plat does, um, besides show us how naive everyone is, it shows Chipotle as, you know, the other dad in the mm, situation yep. who's like, all right, party's over, kids. I'm no longer the fun maquis guy. <laughs> I'm the Starfleet buzzkill. <laughs> Oh, Chipotle. <laughs> so, so what I kind of, I, I watched it twice and I had no fuck it was happening both times. But like, at the end, Chicote is like, all right, Tom, you're going to have to do reports. And Tom's like, well, fine. It's a hard job. Somebody's got to do it. And I was like, who's insulting who here? What the fuck is happening? Like, <laughs> it's so bizarre. He's trying to show he's too cool for it, that it doesn't affect him. He's like, oh, I... Fine, I'll go to my room. I wanted to go there anyway. I like it in my room. <laughs> I'll do reports all day long. <laughs> <laughs> so <f> weird. <laughs> yeah, I think it's supposed to establish Tom as kind of a bad boy, but okay, I don't remember the context because I haven't watched these in sequence in a very long time. I don't think this amounts to anything, even though they're kind of hinting at, oh, there's going to be more like this in the future where he butts heads with people, but... I mean, down the line... He gets demoted eventually, but, yeah, but it's kind like, of unrelated insubordination. Yeah, I mean, I guess it just builds up his character a little bit. As Tom's an asshole a, or steals Tom's food from people. Tom's a cool guy. <laughs> yeah, he is a food-stealing asshole. I just don't like him. So how does uh, Shay Sandrine's rank for you in terms of the, like, the communal holodeck programs that they do for their pastimes? Um, I mean, if Sandrine wasn't so busy fawning all over Tom, like a gross, like weird caricature of somebody that Tom thought that that's how they were interacting with them. Um, it would be okay, I guess. I might hang out there. It's a chill bar. Yeah. I mean, you know, you got pool. But <laughs> you, got, you got pool, you got, you got fake alcohol. Yeah, yeah uh, I don't understand the appeal there. Only so many people can play pool at once. It's got limited appeal as a spectator sport, though I guess they're all they have is clarinet recitals. Like. Yeah, they don't have a lot of good times on that ship. So the irony being that um, the main appeal of watching a pool game is probably gambling. <laughs> <laughs> Why do people play pool in the future? Uh, Geometry? Yeah. It's a mathematics game. Yeah, I know. Harry should have been fucking destroying Tom. Well, that's not true. I'm going to take that back because... No, you can get a mathematician on a pool, uh, at a pool table and they'll have no fucking yeah, what to do. No, I've, I've... They're all talk. No, they just don't know how yeah. to play pool. Yeah. Because yeah. it turns out it's not just geometry. Yeah. yeah. No. Donald Duck in mathematics land. I'll tell you what's up. That's right. <laughs> yeah. I had a good pool lesson. So at the end of the episode, Tuvok apologizes to Janeway for insulting her. And she says, don't worry about it. 
quote, I've been insulted before. And I had, and when I heard that, I was like, oh, this is the female captain. And I was like, ugh. And I don't know why, but it just made me be like, I bet you did. I bet you did get insulted before. That's an interesting thought. Do you think that was the implication that she was still dealing with battle of the sexes in the 24th century? I don't know if it was or if it's just me being sensitive to it, but like it felt, I, I was like, how did she get insulted? And then that sent me down like musings. A dark path of yes, possibilities. Yes. But for whatever reason, that line stood out to me. And then when we watched it the second time, I was like, I want to know the backstories here. I have kind of a feeling that even though it's supposed to be a utopian society where sexism no longer exists, that there's still an underlying, like, sexism no longer exists. And it's like, mm, yeah, Well, you can't just say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and to be fair, there, these shows are made in the modern day where these are still problems. Right. And it's important that they address them, but it's also important that they not... Uh, pretend they don't exist you know like it was a big deal that Janeway was the lead captain on that show but she exists in a world where it's not a big deal where it's not supposed to be a big deal mm-hmm. and so they very rarely make a point of it in the episodes like she doesn't get talked down to by chauvinistic aliens yeah. or something it's like oh a woman captain it's like it's not a common story element and and that speaks to the fact that it's supposed to be a solved problem in the future I think that there are a couple of um there might be like one or two species in the Delta Quadrant that have problems with like the Kazon, have the warlords, and they have a gender issue, I think. Um, but I think that that's partially to help highlight the more advanced human, well, more advanced Starfleet culture. Yeah, kind of a tangent, but a, a point of comparison would be something we never talk about, which is Mass Effect. <laughs> what? I'm not even sure what that is. Linked below. <laughs> Linked previously. <laughs> In that game, you can choose whether to be a male or female character. And though the entire dialogue tree is re-recorded, there's almost no different dialogue across all three games, except I think like one or two one-off exchanges referring to Shepard as, as a woman. Yeah, and uh, when you're on Omega, you want to talk to Arya and you approach one of the guards. When you walk in, if you're a female character, he's like, oh, the dancer tryouts are over there. And you're just like... You have a renegade option, don't you? Uh, yes. <laughs> Um, and Mass Effect 1, when you go talk to General Araka in um, that bar or whatever, he's like, oh, are you going like, to give me a lap dance? And you can totally smack him in the head um, verbally. <laughs> <laughs> so, so those little details are why I actually highly recommend playing Female Shepherd because you get those fun moments where you get to punch somebody in the face. Yeah, that and um, Garrus. Well, yes, yeah. 100%. I was going to say that the voice actor is... Jennifer yeah. Hale is amazing. Yeah, she's way she better. She does a great job. Yes. <clears throat> I mean, I've played Manship. Um, I call him Meshep. If it's Femship, it's Meshep. Yes, <laughs> it is Meshep for real, so... I mean, when I played Mass Effect, I really was role-playing it uh, to a certain extent. I was like, this is an opportunity to choose the character and have it kind of shape your own personality and your own sensibility. And so I also played it the way I would. Uh, I would make those character choices. So then I started another game where I was like, okay, I want to try a different take and see how this plays out. So I'm going to be Femshep and I'm going to be hyper renegade. <laughs> and it felt very wrong <laughs> because I actually was hyper renegade against everything except my crew. Like I would dote on my crew and like hate on everyone else. I'm like, cause that was the only way I could rationalize being renegade. I was like, these people aren't her family. So fuck them. It's funny. That's how I go through life. <laughs> like, that's what made sense to me from a story perspective. I was I, like, but but her crew is her family and her entire life to her. Like, that's what made that work for me. I did a um, Renegade playthrough most of the way through, and I did. This, I ended up having to do the same thing because I was like, I can't, I yeah, can't be dicks can't to my family. Garris. Like, yeah. Uh, I had never, I can look at him in the face, <laughs> squinty little eyes. <laughs> I've played through the Mass Effect games a number of times, and... I always have trouble not doing what I would do in that situation. Mm. Like, I don't think I've ever completed uh, a Renegade run-through. I don't think I've ever, like for KOTOR, uh, I don't think I ever did a Dark Side run-through. I can't bring myself to, like, click those options. Right, it's it's one of the hardest things I've done in a game. Because, like you said, normally when I'm playing through, they're actually relatively easy choices, because I can think, this is what I would choose. But in Renegade, I'm like... I'm getting inside the head of the character more than I normally would. Mm. So I'd often leave the screen just sitting on a major choice screen for so long, like really deliberating the choices to make. So my my natural play style, if I'm doing the which choices I'm naturally going to make, is basically defaulting to Paragon if I uh, unless I can get a f- 
the upper hand and then we'll absolutely <laughs> cheat in that fight. I will throw dirt in that person's eyes happily. Yeah. Like when the guards are coming down the path and you, you snipe, snipe them. them. Yeah. You shoot the tank underneath the fucking Krogan or whatever. Yeah. 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 That's just logical. Yes. Vulcan holidays. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Greasy, naked Tuvok. Pagan Vulcans <laughs> knew how to party. But, so, I mean, Ponfar was a thing back then, right? Yeah. I think it's always been a thing. So, it seemed to me like Ponfar was a thing when they started suppressing their emotions. Oh. Uh, which is also an indeterminate period. That was a long time ago, theoretically. But it seemed to me that that is the result of pent up emotional suppression outbursting at regular intervals. Okay. Oh man. That's always how I read it, anyway. I just, what was Tuvok doing when they took off his, like, impulse control receptors and he's just hanging out in the in sick bay? <laughs> Staring down Janeway and Cass. He's okay. like, eh, you're not Vulcans, but... Mm, You'll do. Smash, work. smash, pat Cass. <laughs> <laughs> where's where's the doctor? doctor? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man. I did not appreciate his doctor disrespect in his emotional state. I could turn you off in a second hologram. Like he immediately depersons him. To be fair, the doctor was being an asshole to Tuvok <laughs> the whole episode. Behind his back and in front of his face. But he was acting as his ME. It was just friendly banter. I guess. <laughs> in the CSI Voyager that exists in my head. It was still just very like, oh, you Vulcans, you always think you're so smart, but then guess what? You're not. Like, I mean, oh. it's true, though. It, no, <laughs> that's, the, that's the moral of the story. True, They're super still... arrogant. <laughs> Yeah. But the doctor was being just as arrogant. Just so like... this was what, like, essentially halfway through the second season. So yeah. it was still pretty early in the doctor trying to like become, I don't know, nicer. I mean, that was the joke, right? He was a, a kind of a poor simulation. So he was a doctor with a very bad bedside manner. I don't really uh, begrudge the doctor for being shit at. He was not very tactful with the whole like, <laughs> oh yeah, suitor. He's, he's not insane because he's. He apparently doesn't have bipolar, therefore not insane. Um, yeah, I, I, problematic. Very problematic to just offhandedly say in the episode that bipolar disorder is insanity. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that these writers weren't exactly enlightened to um, like mental health and like ways that you could talk about it without coming off as an asshole. That's fair, but that's exactly when you don't talk about it at all. Right. Yeah. yeah. That is the appropriate but, way to do it. But if if they didn't mention anything like that, I, I think it probably would have been more odd. Like, it would have felt like even, something was left out. Yeah. And so even this sort of like really antiquated, bad way of approaching it, I'm not going to say it's good, but it would have been odd if there was just nothing there. I think that they could have very glancingly hit it, like by saying... You know, oh, there are no genetic markers that would indicate a predisposition to violent tendencies. That's all they had to do was word it differently. Yeah. And it yeah. would have worked a hundred times better. That's true. Yeah, I think that, I forget whether they said sociopath or psychopath or psychotic. He said, so he's not a psychopath. Yeah, yeah and I was like, that's not the right use of the word. Also, like... he is. He's killing people <laughs> yeah. and not feeling remorse. That's like textbook psychopath. Um, yeah, they, they don't or so, the sex of sociopath. sociopath. Yeah. Psy- psych- uh, psychosis no. is... Well, okay, when you're when you're acting on it, I think that's when it... It's To be fair, I also don't have a good education on this, but I also just don't call people insane randomly yeah, yeah, when I don't know yeah. those things. So I'm virtually certain that sociopathy is like an inability to feel uh, compassion or empathy for other people, but without violent tendencies. And psychopathy is pretty much the same thing, but with violence. That was my read on it too, which made it really strange that they diagnosed him that way. He committed a violent act... That immediately puts him into a different category, no matter what you're reading from his genetic markers. But he also, like, says to Tuvok, like, I don't even know what my own emotions are. And that that's not really the same as, like, not feeling emotions and not feeling empathy or compassion, but... He always said he, d- he doesn't feel anything at all. Like, he did say that. Even yeah. before he had the mind meld, he, okay. he, he was acknowledging that he really wasn't having any feelings in relation to the act he made. Yeah. At best, he might have shown some remorse by trying to cover up the crime, but... Beyond that, once everything came clear, he was very open about the fact that he didn't have feelings on the subject. Well, covering up the crime after the fact, it's purely practical. That, that's exactly it. Like, then saying that's, that's the most you could argue for in that direction. Otherwise, he definitely isn't showing any emotional response to the act itself, except a release from the pent-up violence. Mm-hmm. It did seem like the, um, the idea of understanding his own emotions was appealing to him, because when Tuvok was like, 
oh, well, this is what I can do for you. He, like, pretty much was like, all right, let's go. Um, which kind of looked to me like that's something that he's been wanting to do for a long time. The Vulcan compartmentalization of his, like, own thoughts and ideas was too good to pass up. Yeah, and he even mentions in the episode that he's tried other means of therapy in the past that were just not effective for him. But he was putting in an, an actual effort. And also in things like joining the Maquis, so he had an outlet for that uh, in, a, in a somewhat constructive manner. Um, and that kind of speaks to the Federation's take on these kind of crimes and how it seems like reform is the only prescribed path they have, right? Like they basically said, he'd be imprisoned, we should reform him. You know, going back to the pilot, Tom Paris is in a penal colony for his crimes and really all of that is about trying to make you return to society eventually, which I think is, a, it, that is a very enlightened take and not something we have in modern society as much. I, I think it's interesting that they don't pursue or they don't have in their records medical treatments for things like this. They're like, okay, well, we'll just put him in his quarters. I mean, Tuvok attempts to, eh, okay, debatably, Tuvok attempts to treat him with the meld, um, although it seems like it's more curiosity than, than actually a treatment method. But it seems like, okay, well, they have all these different... I mean, the doctor is trained in alternative medicine and mm -hmm. things like that, and I'm mm -hmm. like, so maybe he understands cognitive behavioral therapy or, you, you know, something like that. Medications, I assume, have advanced. The writers mm -hmm. don't. Ah, <laughs> true, true. That's always what it comes down to. Um, piggybacking off of that with the um, consequences for Suter's crime... What would you do? Because I know what I would do. <laughs> uh, are, are you going renegade? Well, no, I'm saying, like, either, like, yes, it is wasteful to keep somebody who's committed this violent of an act. Like, they're just going to keep him there, and he's just going to use the ship's energy and eat the ship's food. If they were back on Earth or somewhere, he, would he be locked away forever? Like, why should they have to have this burden? On the other hand, you could put him in stasis you get back to wherever you're going then he's not consuming as much like is he going to be contributing to the crew like can he be trusted to contribute to contribute to the crew after he's done this thing because i don't think anybody would trust him to be near him in any capacity certainly not alone certainly sure. not he has away mission he doesn't trust himself for it like right. he knows he's capable of these violent tendencies and and in certain ways can't control them Right. But should he be in the brig? Should he be, like, house arrest? And obviously so, that was a big thing for Tuvok as well. It was like, really? That's it? That's all he gets? Like, what's to prevent the next person from killing somebody? So if we were Voyager's tribunal, what would our sentencing be? Is that the question? Yes. I mean, we're throwing out Chipotle's testimony. His character <laughs> witness testimony. It's not admissible. Yes. So I would probably confine him to... I'd probably put him in the... I don't know how many brig cells they have. Do they have the one, or do they have multiple? They have two? They have okay. two force field cells. All right, so maybe I wouldn't put him in the brig because that consumes too much of the space. It's very constrained space. Well, I mean, it would... There's do, no toilet. Well, not, not like constraining him. I mean, it would consume a resource that they might need. Granted, it would probably be nice to have, you know, a room that is his lush furnished apartment. But I would confine him, and then I would put him through a treatment regimen for at least a couple years with the doctor. I, I would want the doctor to study him to find out what the fuck's going on, because it seems like they don't have very much in the records about this kind of stuff, so I would want to gain more information about it. I would want him to hopefully improve. I would put him to work. I don't know. What can somebody do on their own? I'm going to make him code. He'll code, and he'll kill people if I need him to. Like, that's what I'm going to use him for. And hopefully he'll improve over time. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I'm generally against capital punishment, so I wouldn't be comfortable with just killing him. I think confining him to quarters and and having him undergo therapy and, you know, whether it's just talking or whether it's whether it winds up being, like, medication or, or whatever. Yeah, rehabilitation, I think, is the best you can sort of go for. So generally speaking, I would agree with that. Uh, I also do not believe in capital punishment. I strongly oppose it. I am aware of the situation of Voyager being somewhat unique. They have kind of limited resources. They don't have the ability to do the normal procedures they would for someone in the situation, which is to say not carrying around on their science vessel all the time because that's not practical. 
or fair to him even as a prisoner. They confine him to his quarters, and to be fair, he's got access to a replicator and all the creature comforts. But that's a confined space in space. It's dark. There's a lot of problems with that in terms of an imprisonment scenario. So I don't know if I have a good answer for it. I, I would say I probably would not succumb to capital punishment because I just don't agree with it on a moral level. But I recognize that the limitations of Voyager's situation would make it reasonable to take drastic actions they wouldn't normally take. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I mean, I also recognize that like solitary confinement is cruel and unusual punishment. Or, I mean, I don't know if that's sort of case law or whatever in the U.S., but I would consider it so. And, um, and I think the general consensus is... There's no general consensus on that. Um, I will say that but... when prisons do that, it's usually for short periods as a specific extra punishment. It's not, even then, criminals of, of the worst crimes are put back in normal lockdown environments, typically. Yeah. And so solitary is just not a good way to go. But given opportunities to interact with other people and to safely like have visitors or whatever, whether it's like somebody who knew him or granted probably no one is going to be interested in talking to him but but that may be a responsibility that people could be up for i want to see Neelix talk to him oh my god drive him over the edge this is like immersion therapy like for that's cruel and unusual (laughs) that would be interesting i Neelix might like the challenge actually and with that we've concluded our discussion of meld For next week's episode, I'll hand the show over to our resident holodeck programmer, Jen. All right. I'm very excited to tell you all that next week we'll be watching season two, episode 25, Resolutions, which is the one where uh, Chipotle and Jingwei get trapped on that planet. Oh, Oh, God. God. (laughs) (laughs) Jen did not disappoint. The bathtub episode. Yes. And the massage. Oh, man. (laughs) The episode that launched a thousand fix. Literally, a thousand fix. I looked it up. (laughs) Until then, this has been Salamander Babies. To read show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes, visit us on the web at salamanderbabies.com. We're on Twitter at salamandertrek, Facebook at facebook.com slash salamanderbabies, and Tumblr at salamanderbabies.tumblr.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at hellocomputer at salamanderbabies.com. Computer and program.